pretty much every institution that was meant to do anything positive for people in Britain uh, over the last year, uh, in particularly in health, failed completely at some stage. And whether that's in terms of, you know, something I was personally very passionate about was like understanding how the diseases spread, the importance of mask wearing, whether that was in terms of the sort of interventions, how well the internet, whether it was travel lists, whether it was this, whether it was that, PPA provision, like everything broke. And that is extremely disturbing. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello lovely listeners. Welcome to episode 28 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Today I'm speaking with Harry Fletcher Wood, who has written an absolutely fascinating book called Habits of Success, Getting Every Student Learning. I've become fascinated by the idea of habit change in recent years, ever since reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. If you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. And if you're interested in applying ideas around habit change to education, I strongly recommend Harry's book also. Groundbreaking books about education don't come around too often. There's a lot of recycling of other people's ideas going on at the moment, as you may have noticed. Observing the education debate is sometimes a bit like staring through the window of a tumble dryer, watching the same ideas just go around and around and around. But Habits of Success is truly pioneering, I think. At least I haven't come across anything quite like it before. We've heard a lot in recent years about cognitive science, in particular a quite narrow interpretation of cognitive science which focuses largely on memorising stuff. But there's been another area of social science bubbling away in the background in recent years, slowly coming to the boil, the field of behavioural science. A few years ago, the UK government set up something called the Behavioural Insights Team, also known as the Nudge Unit, which focuses on how to change people's behaviour, not by telling them what to do, like, for example, eat five fruit and veg a day, but by nudging them in the right direction, like by putting attractive displays of fruit next to the checkout in the school canteen. In Habits of Success, Harry applies insights from this fascinating world of behavioural science to the problem of how to help students build helpful habits for learning effectively while breaking one or two unhealthy habits along the way. Here are some of the reviews that the book received upon its release. Alex Quigley wrote... Habits of Success is one of those rare books that successfully manages to distill a wealth of research into an accessible and practical guide for every teacher. The key issues, behaviours and habits that emerge in most busy classrooms are depicted with unerring accuracy and precision. The book goes on to perform the feat of offering evidence-informed approaches to help solve so many of the complex issues facing teachers and their pupils. I seldom make this claim for a book about teaching, but habits of success could prove to have a transformative impact on those school teachers and leaders who read it and apply its intelligent insights. Close quote. Here's another quote from Craig Barton, the author of the Craig Barton Maths podcast and the author of How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. Craig wrote, Being a closet economics graduate, the concept of nudging has always fascinated me. Books by Kahneman and Thaler are among my non-fiction favourites and I have regularly tried and failed to apply their techniques to get my wife to make my tea and my two-year-old to sleep through the night. But one thing I had never considered was how these ideas could be applied in the classroom. 
step forward, Harry Fletcher Wood. As he displayed in his previous book, Responsive Teaching, Harry has an enviable knack of making complex ideas entirely comprehensible. Here, Harry tackles the big questions, questions such as how can we convince students to learn and how can we help students to start? Through the use of dialogue, readers are able to see exactly how scenarios might play out in the classroom, making this one of the most practical and actionable books I have ever read. A big recommend from me. Close quote. And there's one final quote here from Doug Lamov of Teach Like a Champion fame. Doug writes, Habits of success is clear, well-organized, and full of useful advice. It embraces research often overlooks, but deeply and profoundly meaningful. What you get from Harry is not just the research and interpretation, but deep insight and humanity in thinking about how it fits together and what it all means. There couldn't be a better guide. Close quote. I really enjoyed my conversation with Harry. About halfway through the podcast, there is a section where I ask him some taxing questions about the book and what it means, and his responses were really impressive. Harry has an enviable gift, as Craig Barton noted, for expressing complex ideas in a really engaging, accessible way. I also really enjoyed his recent conversation with Ollie Lovell on the ERRR podcast. His answer to Ollie's opening question, what's the purpose of education, should receive a Nobel Prize or something, is absolutely epic. As always, listeners, this was a fascinating conversation which left me with many more questions than answers, which is always a good sign that you've hit a rich seam. Before we dive in, a quick roundup of Rethinking Education news, if I may. This week, the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the online community that has grown up alongside this podcast, welcomed its 400th member. In fact, we're already up to about 4.15 because there are about five people joining the community every day at the moment. We've also started having monthly Zoom calls so that we can connect with one another in real time and kick around some ideas for how we might move things forward a bit. If you would like to join an entirely life-affirming community and connect with people from all over the world, not just teachers, but also alternative educators, parents and carers, homeschoolers, psychologists, young people themselves, you can do so by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Networks app and searching for Rethinking Education. Things are also moving forward on the Rethinking Education conference front. We have an amazing venue in mind, a beautiful secondary school in London, and a date, Saturday the 17th of September 2022. More details will follow shortly, but for now you might want to block out that date on your calendar. It's going to be a wonderful thing indeed. As you might imagine, creating these podcasts and running the community and planning conferences takes a considerable amount of time and energy and behind-the-scenes plotting and scheming. If you enjoy these conversations as much as I do and would like to support the Rethinking Education project, you can now become a patron of the podcast should you feel so inclined. There are various benefits associated with doing so, including a searchable written and audio transcript of every episode to date, a copy of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about learning to learn I co-authored with my amazing friend Kate McAllister. And at the highest tier, you can also access a series of four 90-minute recorded workshops on metacognition, self-regulation, oracy, and self-regulated learning, which you can enjoy in the privacy of your own home or share with colleagues as a stimulus for professional development. To support the show, please visit patreon.com forward slash repod. 
That's spelt R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, if you'd like to buy me a coffee, which some people seem to prefer for some reason, you can do so by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. It always gives me a lovely lift to uh, receive such an email, and if you would like to do so, there are links in the show notes. I'd like to offer a massive thank you to everyone who supported the Rethinking Education project to date, and in particular to B. Stevenson and Ellie Costello, the two most recent donors. It is much appreciated and helps keep the podcast sustainable in the long term. Anyway, that's quite enough of that. Without further ado, I will hand over to my recent conversation with Harry Fletcher Wood. I hope, and in fact, I am quite confident that you will enjoy the show. Harry Fletcher Wood, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So you're here mainly to talk about your new book, Habits of Success, Getting Every Student Learning. And it's something that I am already like super interested in. And that's quite a recent development. I read Atomic Habits, as, as many people have, and I think that that's probably lots of people's sort of point of entry into the world of behavioral science and, and habit change. And I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of my own life in recent years about, you know, the habits that inform me, like bedtime and just the, the, the boring sort of almost interminable conversation that I have with myself about self-care meditation, diet, exercise, all that stuff. And looking at it through the lens of habit change has been really powerful and it's really helped me to make strides in that direction. I'm better shaped than I've ever been. I'm eating better, going to bed at a proper time consistently, more productive. So it's really powerful. And I'm so I'm interested before we sort of move in, into the the book, I, I was just interested about what was your point of, of entry in terms of your interest in this? Is this something that you came at from an educational perspective? Or did you come at this through habit change yourself? Like what was your point of entry into this into this field? I'd say I came at it from an educational point of view, but my own experience was really helpful in making sense of stuff as I read about it and learned more about it. So one angle was I read a book called Switch and the subtitle is How to Change When Change is Hard. And I read that and I was like, wow, I can use these things in the classroom tomorrow. But another angle, like a thing that bothered me for years as I was involved in teach training and teach development was how do we help teachers to do the right thing to, to respond to, to challenges when everything is pushing them away from doing whatever the thing is when I say the right thing like the thing that what they want to do so how do you help a teacher to respond in a really calm and sophisticated way when they're like tired stressed wound up and they're dealing with the sort of the 12th difficult conversation of the day and I was trying to solve that as someone involved in teacher development and I ended up in habit again habit formation from that but definitely, as I as I wrote the book over the sort of the preceding three years, it did just force me to sort of look at them like, why are you doing that? Like, why you know, why aren't you doing that? You know what you should be doing. You should be writing the book, and you're not like you know, not spending time as you should be. So yeah, start with education, but definitely has a lot of implications, I think, for personal life. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, and this is something that's been happening more widely in other fields as well, like the behavioral sciences, probably most famously have been manifested in the so-called nudge unit or the, the behavioral insights team within the government. And I imagine that you know an awful lot more about that than I do. 
And so could you just start by sort of sketching like a brief... Cause, so one of the things I've heard you say before, I think it might have been in your conversation with Ollie Lovell, which, by the way, if people haven't listened to that, I really recommend that they dive into that. I'll, I'll share a link in the show notes. Uh, you were talking about how there's been lots of interesting like cognitive science in recent years and quite a narrow sort of section of the cognitive sciences, really, as the, that have been applied within education. But you were sort of saying that there's this whole other field called the behavioral sciences, which is potentially even more, you know, helpful for, for school teachers and school leaders. And that, that you know, isn't getting the, the same level of recognition. And that's essentially what your book is about, isn't it? It's like quite a pioneering book in that you're applying these ideas from this field that hasn't really been about education before and trying to make it relevant to, to teachers. And so can you just yeah, sketch like a, a, a sort of a general overview of the behavioral sciences? Where did this work take place? Like what are the, who are some of the sort of like the key people or the key publications that have shaped thinking in this, in this field more widely? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not the right person to do this because I'm not a behavioral scientist. I am just a, a teacher turned writer, but I'll give it a go. So I think the one really strong influence within this has been behavioral economics and particularly the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And they really came from a, a place where there was sort of classical economics, which was like, you know, well, James, when you're deciding uh, how to spend your, you know, your pay or how to save for retirement or, you know, where, what restaurant to eat in or where to live or whatever, you are going to sit and do like a rational calculation and come up with the most rational thing. And a lot of modelling, like if you're modelling, like how does the whole economy work, you sort of have to conclude that. James is going to choose like the flat to live in that has the best cost benefit analysis. And he's going to like move jobs if he could get paid 5% more and not move job and so on. And what Kahneman and Tversky spent like most of their careers doing was pulling apart this just by showing like there are loads of situations in which people don't do the thing that classical economics or sort of basic cost benefit analysis would um, would lead you to do. So like James can move to like a flat that's like 10% nicer and 10% che cheaper, but he's actually not going to because moving's a pain and it's just not worth the hassle. James can have a different job, but he actually quite likes his commute. And like my economic modelling doesn't include the fact that one tube line is better than another tube line or he'd have to get a car when he could have cycled or whatever. So that's been really powerful. And particularly Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, was, was a huge influence. I think the other big influence was Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, who wrote the book Nudge, uh, which was very much arguing like, look, here are some ways to achieve public policy goals without forcing people to do stuff. And so the, the, the title, it was originally, they wanted to call it libertarian paternalism. And their publisher suggested that actually, that's not how you sell a, a million copies. But the idea, the idea was very much like, well, I've got mixed feelings about this. But their, their idea was, look, sometimes uh, the state or others like have ideas that might be quite good for you, like maybe you should exercise more and smoke less. And one way to approach this and the way that governments classically approach this is like, well, we'll put up the tax on cigarettes and we will, I don't know, how do you incentive exercise? And but like put up some posters saying exercise is good. Or maybe we'll ban smoking and so on. And all of those things might work, but that actually sometimes there are lighter touch, simpler things that you can do that might decrease uh, smoking without having to go reach for your blunderbuss of, you know, we're going to have to legislate and so on. And that feeds through. So that for Thaler and Sunstein's work was directly sort of instrumental in the establishment of behavioural insights team, Nudge Unit. And the Nudge Unit in the UK was very much seen as, as pioneering. And, and there are now, I think, it's over 100 countries with 
some kind of equivalent of this, each sort of tailored to that country's you know needs and and nuances and, and and the context and so on. But that I think has really fed through to a lot of the the contemporary interest in in this kind of work, alongside you know just psychologists and various others who've been chipping along, just doing their research ages and trying to publicise it and so on. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And so, are you able to while we're on the nudge unit, are you able to sort of to share like any examples of of this, the kinds of things that the nudge unit does? Because it's quite a big thing. Is it like hundreds of people work in this in this? Is it officially a government department or is it like a... It is. It's been spun off and it is a social purpose company. And I hope I'm going to get all this right. The, like, the cabinet office still has a stake in it. The people who work there have like own most of it. But it was originally a, a unit within government, but it now is its own entity. I see. Okay. And so you often hear like uh, examples of, for example, like people put a little like picture of some goalposts in a urinal, right? And it like makes people stop weeing on the floor, which like in case any female listeners or people who don't tend to frequent male toilets, that's a big problem <laughs> in male toilets. And so like there's an example of how you can pers- like you put do something really small that, that sort of has a big effect, but it's not the best example, uh, partly because <laughs> it involves wee. So like what, what other examples are there that you can think of that of like, you know, initiatives that this unit has initiated that have led to sort of, you know, the kinds of changes that they want to see? So the two examples that I really like to give, because most people can associate with them. So if you've received a doctor's appointment letter some point in the last year or two, it probably said on it, if you miss this appointment, it's going to cost the NHS like a million pounds, like, you know, 270 pounds. And you're like, what? It's only a 10 minute consultation. But anyway, that's they tell you that. And when I ask people, have you noticed that? in a letter or what have you noticed in doctor's appointments recently they remember that and then I say how did, how do you feel and people tend to say I thought wow and like you know that's a lot of money and I really should go so that's a, a nice example and the other one feels pertinent because I just had to renew my driving license and you know public service announcement you have to do that every 10 years and in the middle of that process like three quarters of the way through you're like, oh, I've nearly finished this really long tedious form it's like by the way how do you feel about joining the organ donation register? And that is a, the, one of the first things the behavioural insights team trial was looking at. You know, how do we encourage people to sign up for this? And that's it's just a really interesting example because most people say they'd be happy to donate organs, but most people are not signed up to the register. And so it's it's just one of these classic situations where like we sort of know what we want to do, but we don't quite get round to doing whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, I see. Okay, thank you. And so, I mean, firstly, I want to say that I really enjoyed the book. Like, it's written in an incredibly, uh, very clearly structured way. You've got this uh, amazing thing that I've never actually seen anywhere before. Like, after almost every paragraph, after paragraph or two, there's like a call-out box that reiterates what the key point is of that. The uh, there's there's a chapter sort of map at the start of each chapter. There's checklists, applications. Like it's clear that you've done an all, an incredible amount of of heavy lifting. I mean, I'd be interested to hear on your thoughts on the book. Like, are you happy with how it came out? I know that it took quite a long time. You've had to do a lot of thinking, and it went through a number of iterations, didn't it, to get to this point? So, are you happy with with how it turned out? And and I know that it's not been out for long, but what's your sense of the, the reception so far? I don't think as happy as I can. It was definitely like the last six. Yeah, so it took me just under three years to write. And the last six months were uh, just a slog. It just went on. And I was kept being like, I'm nearly done. I'm nearly done. I'm nearly done. They'd be like, oh, this. And, you know, they'd just be like, I'd be like, I'm going to go through, I'm going to get through three pages of editing today. And I'd spend like an hour on a sentence because it wasn't quite 
right so and then near the end i was like oh you know actually i should rewrite this and the other no just you need to get rid of it it will break you if you you keep going but actually then by the time you've gone through like copy editing and proofreading and so on and then you see the final thing you're like oh okay you know this this was all right i'm pretty pretty happy with this so no in that sense yeah good I mean, it's always really hard to hard to tell, but there's there's been some positive things on Twitter. There've been a few people have said, "Oh, useful, interesting." Uh, so, but I think you know the, the proof is in you know people people. In, if, it, what I'd love to see in six months or a year's time is people saying, you know, okay, we've we've used it for this or that or whatever, and and it's interesting. Like, so my last book, Responsive Teaching, came out in 2018, and it was definitely like it's sort of probably in the last year, I guess the pandemic's got in the way, but it's in the last year that I particularly had schools getting in touch and saying, oh, you know, we've used this to rethink how we do the curriculum or or like lesson planning or whatever. And so it just takes, you know, books have to filter out, people have to read them and then like put them down and then be like, oh, you know, actually that was useful and go back to it and so on. So I'm not expecting, you know, an overnight like anything, but I'd hope in five years time, there's some sort of evidence that people have read it and got something useful out of it. Yeah, well, it feels like this the kind of thing that there would be more books about, like because it's quite new. It's the it's a first sort of foray into this into this field, and and just in case people are wondering, like like how might this apply to education? I'll just share that like, there's an example that you give at the end of the introduction, where you, there's like a, a typical sort of conversation. So sitting in a school re- reception, a student arrives late. The teacher says, "Why are you late?" They go, "I woke up late." And then the teacher goes, how's your toe? They obviously knew that they had a problem with their toe. The kid goes, oh, it feels a bit numb, but it's better. And they go, oh, okay, have a good day, sort of thing, right? And it's the sort of conversation that happens, you know, a thousand times up and down the com- up and down the country. Or the teacher might say, oh, well, try not to be late tomorrow, you know, whatever. But you were saying there's nothing wrong with this conversation, but it felt like a missed opportunity to increase the chance of the student arriving on time the next day. For example, the teacher might elicit a commitment by saying, what time will you arrive tomorrow? And then by saying that out loud, we'll get into that later on with this idea of implementation intentions. They could have prepared a prompt, so they could have said, can you set your alarm for tomorrow now? Like, get your phone out and do it now so that you're not going to happen be late again. Or they could emphasize a social norm. For example, they might say, well, your tutor group, we're all on time. I'd like you to be with them tomorrow. And that's, we know that that's a really powerful motivator that people like to be a part of you know, a wider group. And so I think that that's useful for me. It's just a really quick little sort of vignette to see, oh, okay, this is, uh, this, this is how these, these little tweaks can be applied that apply the principles of behavioral science in ways, in the kinds of conversations that we have with kids throughout the day, throughout the year, in a way that is more likely to elicit you know, favorable behaviors in the future. But there's way more to it than that obviously. And so we're going to, we're going to work our way through. I think we should maybe start by just like thinking about habits and what a habit is. So like early on, like on page six, I think it is, you you say a a habit is an automatic response to a situation. And so it's the sort of, that word automatic often comes up. So it's like, you know, yeah, I need to put my shoes on. So I habitually tie my shoelaces and I don't even think habitually brush my teeth and you don't really think about it. It's automated. But there's many ways of defining habits and lots of people focus on different things. A bit later on, you, you describe habits as being lasting solutions to fundamental challenges. And that seems to me to be slightly different to that first one. It's like the first one says it's an automatic response to a situation. The second one is about it's a lasting solution to a fundamental challenge. I don't know. This seems to be one of them seems to be more about good habits, right? Like a solution to a fundamental challenge is a good habit. But there are also bad habits as well. I don't know. Like, I mean, have you got an easy answer to this? Like what's your what's your sort of boilerplate answer to like what, what a habit is? So the definition is the first thing you said. A habit is an 
automatic response to a to a prompt to a stimulus and that could be good or bad so you know like if i get upset i could habitually take a deep breath calm down work out why i'm upset or i could habitually like you know scream or lash out or whatever and so you know that if if the response is is automatic in some way then it is habitual whether it is good or bad and i think that's something that's really worth bearing in mind if we think about habit like so part of our work might be to encourage positive habits among students but everyone including ourselves have already developed a load of habitual responses to situations like my you know my son's three and he has already developed some habits about what he wants and you know how he'll react to to certain things and so i think that the key thing i'd encourage listeners or, or readers to do is is sort of look for and think about the habitual and which things are becoming accustomed responses in your life and in your student's life and that is the and that they may be good and they may be bad and things that may be good in one context may be less good in another and i think you know if if, uh, for listeners who've taught year sevens you see students turn up and they've got a whole load of habits about learning you know like whenever i get stuck i'm going to ask for help i'm going to ask if i can turn the page and, and so on and so on which you're then saying these these aren't necessarily these may have worked for you really well in your in your old school but they're not going to work for you here yeah 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 absolutely and so yeah so you say around that point you sort of say some students come to school with productive habits but no student is perfect and some arrive with habits which undermine their success we may feel uncomfortable. This is a, this is quite a key point. We may feel uncomfortable planning to influence students' habits, but you say that if we don't, we abandon them to their existing habits. In effect, we renounce our influence on their learning. Helping students to form good habits is crucial to get them learning. And so, like, can you just sort of share things like what kinds of existing habits might students have that would undermine their success the kinds of things that we would say that do you, do you think it is the right and proper role of a teacher to say that's an unhealthy habit and i'm going to try and replace it with a more desirable one so if you think about like you know you succeed in school if you are able to concentrate participate and persevere i think i mean i don't want to wildly oversimplify things but those are three things that i think are core It'd be really easy, you know, all, all of us struggle with those things in certain contexts. And I think we've, we've all met students who who struggle with those. And so, you know, your natural reaction actually to getting stuck on a task might have been to to give up and say, I can't do it. And that I would very much describe as a, as a habit, which is is going to undermine your your success in school. Likewise, your natural reaction when things get a bit complicated or difficult might be to to give up. And again, that's a habit you could develop age one, two, three, five, seven, fourteen. And if as a teacher you meet a student who has formed that habit, I think you're going to want to to work with students to to change the habit in some way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and I think that anybody listening would would go along with that. And this, like, I've really enjoyed reading the book because there's so many sort of like fascinating little nuggets in there, and like just little bits of of uh, like sort of evidence that come not just from you know the world of education, but from elsewhere. And just to share one, and we might refer back to this later on. You were talking about how when choosing to watch what film to watch of an evening, people tend to watch enjoyable romps or some mindless action film like Four Weddings or whatever, Die Hard or something. And they defer films like Schindler's List, which are good to have seen, a delayed benefit, but less immediately enjoyable to some future evening. 
And you sort of equate that with learning and saying that learning, however, incurs immediate costs like time and effort for benefits which are deferred and hard to imagine. Even concrete benefits like money aren't that great at motivating kids if the, if the money is deferred. So there was a, stu a study where students were offered $20 to perform well in a test that was payable immediately. And that did work at pay making them work harder. But if they were like, work hard in a test and you'll get $20 in a month from now, that wasn't effective. And so summarizing this point, you, see, you say that people prefer immediate benefits and deferred costs, but learning offers immediate costs for deferred benefits. And that's why we sort of, we need to stick some sort of like Jimmy the machine somehow. We need to somehow like help to make learning seem more desirable, given that by its nature, it's, uh, it's you know, it's got deferred costs. So in, in Atomic Habits, James Clear talks about that, about the difference between like a good habit and a bad habit, right? And it's like, why is it that good habits are so hard to pick up? And it's for that same reason that they, they tend to be, like if you eat a salad instead of a burger and look in the mirror, you're going to look the same. But if you eat that, if you eat your salads every lunch for, for a year instead of burgers for a year, then, you know, you're going to start looking better in the mirror. And likewise, like, you know, bad habits like smoking, you know, might give you a sort of a little rush in the, in the short term or whatever it might be, you know, playing a video game, you know, something that's just like going to give you that spontaneous immediate feedback. And so his, his take on that is like that's exactly that same reason is why it's so hard to pick up good habits like learning independently and so on. While it's, you know, why it's so, so easy to, to pick up bad habits. And, and the, the opposite is true. It's why it's so hard to get rid of bad habits. You know? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's. I think this is this is core to yeah why teaching is difficult and actually why almost everything is difficult. Like oh, a huge proportion of things that could, like permit achievement, success in whatever domain you're interested in, demand a degree of hard graft at a time that you'd really rather be doing you know, something else. And so if you look at, you know, sports people or whatever, if you look at people who've pursued particular professional careers, there are times that you have to do things that you don't want to do immediately and that you don't want to do in the moment, because if you don't, like you won't be able to achieve this long-term goal. But actually that that kind of self-control is, is really difficult and it's really difficult to sustain. I think I take various things from this, but the most powerful, I think, is wherever possible well two uh, yeah two things one if you formed a habit that cost benefit calculation stops being important so an example i quite often give is is going for a run and if i'm waking up in the morning and thinking shall i go for a run it's quite likely quite often i'm gonna be like oh, it's raining i'm cold it's cold i'm tired i probably won't go this morning whereas if i form the habit of like every morning or every saturday morning or whatever i go for a run i won't I'll just be like, well, I'll get up and I go for a run. It'd be weird if I didn't go for a run. And so I'd probably better go for a run. So first thing, habit's really powerful. Second thing, if, if you're trying to encourage a single action or trying to help people form habits, if you can reduce the costs and sort of advance the benefits, you're making it a lot easier. And so I give sort of quite a simple, but I think potentially powerful examples. Instead of telling students, like, answer these 20 questions, ask them to, to answer like five questions and then go over them and be like, okay, great, you've really got it. Let's do another five. And so by doing that, you're not asking them for as much and you're helping them to feel like they are making progress more quickly. And by doing that, I think you you make action much more tempting. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, so, so that, let's talk about. Oh, hang on a minute. Let, let, let's let's talk about. So, so first of all, like in, in the introduction, or it might be chapter one, you sort of line up a few different ways in which teachers try to address this this problem, right? That that learning is fundamentally sort of less desirable than goofing off. Let's just put it in those simple terms. And so, like you say, like you know, we we use things like reasoning, like you know, if you work hard, then you'll get a good job, and you'll be well paid, and you'll be well rewarded, and so on. And that kind of reasoning, or it could be more short term than that reasoning can be can work for some students but it doesn't doesn't work for all you talk about rewards and punishments how they can be very powerful bit of the old behaviorism but they're quite hard work to implement in a fair and even-handed way often kids really revel in that, those kinds of conversations like oh this isn't fair you you didn't call him out for talking and now you're just picking on me and fairness it can like the rewards and punishments can lead to problems in themselves and yeah you, you would talk about how they can evoke resentment making the change easy and tempting can help you trying to induce you know things like for example come to come to revision class and you get pizza you know the, but the effects might not last and you talk about motivate motivation and self-regulation being valuable but the, that you treat those two things separately really motivation is sort of like the thing is that you sort of like you can get really motivated but motivation doesn't last does it it sort of wears off after a while so you could really psych yourself up to go for that run in the rain but unless you build it into a habit then it's not that motivation fades and self-regulation we're going to come back to this later, I think, but in, in this part of the book, you talk about how it's um, it's hard to do because it's like quite a higher order thing. The way that self-regulation is often talked about is in terms of self-regulated learning, where you're like, you need to be aware of a number of different strategies that you could possibly use. You need to try one, evaluate how it went. You know, it's quite a complex cognitive, social, emotional, you know, multi-layered thing, self-regulation. And, you know, it, again, it's just like, it's not, it's not an all, it's not an all in fix. And this is, so this is why you sort of, arrive at habits and you're like all of these other methods that we use to try to motivate kids to, to work hard don't often work and then you say that so habits promise do promise lasting change and this is why you've arrived at this do you have anything to add to that before we move into different models yeah i mean so two two things to add one is i then go on to say that actually success involves blending these things so a little bit of sharing the rationale, a little bit of making it easy, helping to form habits, ensuring students are motivated, the odd sanction and reward where necessary. And it's only by pulling all of those things together that you kind of get get that. The other was that I got some feedback on this chapter from a teacher in the States. And, and as he read through this bit, he was just, just going to be like, yes, that's, this is exactly the process that I went through as I sort of learned as a teacher. And so it is structured literally in the order that definitely I developed and this, this reader developed as like I went from like oh I can persuade all my if I take long enough I can persuade all my students that they should just study and love history to like oh this isn't working you're in detention you're in detention to oh I can do this more cleverly to okay let's try and let's try and build the lasting habits that are really going to matter absolutely and you can see that you can see the sequence that runs through that sort of that series of levels and so so one of the things that I really liked about atomic habits is and I don't know if it's a bit of a like because I was I was sort of a little bit surprised that it like it doesn't appear in your in your list of references when I mean, it's not really an academic it's not a scholarly text is it it's like a popular science book but for me it was really it was really influential and what that, so he talks about how any hab, any habitual behavior is comprised of four sort of stages, if you like. There's a cue, there's a craving, there's a response, and then there's a, a reward. So like the cue might be you hear the ice cream van playing its jingle. Craving is like, I want an ice cream. The response is you go and buy an ice cream. And the reward is, you know, eating an ice cream, right? It feels all nice in, you, in your tummy. 
Um, and he said even down to like walking into a room and turning the light on. Like the cue is the room is dark. The craving is I want the room to be light. The response is hit the switch. The reward is I can see. And that all happens in a split second. And so that you can see how these four stages give us a sort of an insight into that different layers of any sort of behavior, really, any habitual behavior. And then he says that this therefore gives us four sort of points of entry into building good habits and getting rid of bad habits. Because, for example, with the queue, you can make it really obvious. You know, you can make it like the, the queue is really glaring. Or if you want to get rid of a bad habit, you get rid of the queue, right? For example, you delete the app from your phone and so on. I'm not going to go through them all. But likewise, you know, you can, you can address this problem at the level of the craving, at the level of the response, and at the level of the reward. And that, to me, felt really, really helpful, and certainly in terms of changing my own habits. And I know that previously you used a similar sort of model, which was called the East model. Where you make something, is it easy, attractive, uh, social, and timely? For? And I know that you, you sort of dabbled with that a little bit, and then you sort of thought, actually, this isn't quite doing what we need it to do. And you've developed this other model, which you refer to as simplify in the book. So can you start by just talking about either the, clear, either the James Clear thing or the East model, and what, what it is that you think that those things miss and why we need to look at this slightly differently. Cool, yeah. So Atomic Habits is a great book, and I recommend it to, to anyone who's interested. The reason why it's not in the references was that I read it quite late on in the reading and writing process, and so there wasn't anything that it told me that I needed to reference that I hadn't already sort of come across somewhere else. So that's the only reason. And as you say, like, you know, if I'd gone to a sort of primary research study, I wasn't then going to pull in Atomic Habits. I would say in that four-step model, it's right but a habit researcher would nuance the picture a little bit. And in particular, I mean, I've said that the definition of habit, and it is the sort of the accepted definition within habit science at the moment, is this automatic response to a stimulus. And initially, when you're forming a habit, you do go through those four stages. But actually, what for, what creates a habit is, is the automaticity between stimulus and response. And so at that point, you may not feel the craving and you may not feel the reward. And this is why habits can last after when they're no longer rewarding. So I may, you know, like I may, uh, you know, like start drinking because it makes me feel better uh, in social situations, uh, which is the reward. And it may, I may like want to not continue to drink in that way, but I might keep doing it because it's become a like, I feel a bit awkward, I'll have a drink or I walk into a bar, I'll have a drink. And so I think it's just worth bearing those things in mind when we look at, at habit change like it is right but it's not the whole whole picture the east framework i mean i set out to write the book around the east framework uh, because that was the framework that i was happy with familiar with that i've worked with teachers on in the past and i oh, i don't know this is one of the reasons why it took three years but somewhere between six months and a year in i was like it doesn't really there's a different structure trying to get out and uh, it didn't so lots of things sort of seemed like they would fit in two different places. So, for example, you mentioned implementations already, making a commitment. So making a commitment is you commit to a time and a place when you're going to act. So that is the T, the timely. But these commitments are much more powerful if you make them to other people, which is the S, the social. So I'm faced with the like, OK, do I just keep write a really repetitive structure? And that was the point that I came up with the, the simplify model. And that it just seemed to work and articulate most of the things that i wanted it to say yeah okay so so can you walk us through it simplify 
Yeah. So to start with, it's specifying. So each letter, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, represents one of the stages. To start with, it's this idea of specifying uh, what the goal is that we want students to pursue and make three points there. First, that we're going to have to narrow things down, like it's hard to change lots of things at once, almost impossible. Second, that habits are a better goal than one-off changes, like it's all very nice if Jenny does her homework once, but actually I want her to do her homework every week and that's what's going to make a difference. And that thirdly, sometimes you might want to break it down further and you might just want to see an immediate change. And in that case, a bite-sized goal is really powerful rather than a kind of vague, generic, you know, be better, you know, work harder. Well, what does that mean? And like, I'd like to see you write a page in the next five minutes is a lot more practical. Once you've got a goal, I think you want to inspire and motivate students to pursue it. So I am. And I look at four ways, you might want to dig into them individually, but four ways to do with both showing students the value of, of learning, showing them that it's worth the immediate effort, the value of role models, and then the power of social norms. Once you've motivated students to take the first step, talk about plan. So that's plan of uh, simplify. And so that's to do with helping students commit to an action and helping them to plan out the details of what am I going to do? When am I going to do it? Uh, how am I going to prompt myself to do it so that they act on the good intentions that they've hopefully formed through the inspiration we've encouraged in them? And then talk about make initiating, that's the I, easy. So making sure students are clear about what we want them to do, making sure they feel confident to start and just practicing so that they the first steps are clear, familiar, they feel confident doing them. And then F is follow up. So, you know, we, we all start lots of things, do it for a while and then stop. So looking at ways to show students that what they're doing is worthwhile, helping students feel like they belong. And then just the need to keep restarting things like, you know, we, we, we do things for a while and then the, the half formed habit breaks. And so if you want to help people change, you're going to need to keep coming back and, and potentially doing these things more than once rather than concluding, well, you know, I've asked them nicely and I've told them and they're not doing it. And therefore they, they don't want to do it. And they're, you know, the kids are bad. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that's definitely something that I found in in my own journey, that it's like that going back all the way through my life, like any sort of serious behavioral change, it's never a, a flip switch situation, like giving up smoking, or like, you know, give up for six months and then start for another three months and then give up for two weeks and back and forth and back and forth. The same with exercise, the same with bedtime, the same with diet, like all of the things that I've done in my life have been that sort of very sort of juddery, like back and forth, like two steps forward, one step back process. And I think it's really important to to recognize that, you know, that this is not going to be a quick win and that teachers going down this road, if they're going to take, take the ideas of this book on board, like it's a different way of thinking about things, isn't it? It's a different way of being. And for example, to go back to that example that we were talking about earlier, you know, the, the teacher asking those different questions of that kid, that's a, that's a habitual change that's got to happen within the teacher. And that's, you know, that's, it could be a whole year-long journey in itself or more before the, you can expect there, there to be a knock-on consequence for the kids. So this is sort of a slow burn situation, isn't it? I quote late in the book, in primarily in the chapter about teacher change, from a really good blog post by Elizabeth Mount Stevens. And what I really like about what she talks about is is how she she's like she knows that it's a habit change for her as well as her students to to do some of these things. So for example, she'll try. She, she talks about wanting students to plan longer answers better. And so the, the sort of change is she's going to give them a post-it note that they're going to write a little plan on before they start writing. 
And she's like, this makes it simple and easy for me and simple and easy for them. And actually, yeah, we have to get both of these things right if we're going to make a change in, in the classroom. Yeah. So let's pick out. I'm not going to go through this in like step by step detail because like you did a you did a, a podcast with Ollie Lovell as we mentioned, and I recommend that people go there if they want to sort of a, you know to go through every step of it. But I'd like to pull out a few bits that really sort of that really caught my eye. One of them being about norms. So in the this is in the second chapter. This is about like, how can we convince students to learn. Uh, this idea is about about the norms and about how for for students their peers are all important aren't they you're talking about how a student's peers are their primary audience uh, and that they are influenced by what's expected of them and that teachers setting out their expectations you know is going to influence their behavior but they're influenced more by what their peers are doing and that students know that they should be working but if if no one else is for example then they don't right and that's sort of why the cover the cover lesson phenomenon happens isn't it that they, there's more kids than usual so even the sort of the normally hard-working kids are like actually you know no one else is working i'm not going to do it either in this lesson which is absolutely fascinating so th- there's so much that can spin off from this one thing that sprang to mind as I was reading this, and this is on quite a big scale, is about when there's a whole school norm, which is like against working hard, right? Like there's a whole school cultural norm where it's like it is not cool to work hard. I was talking with a relative recently who was, who was whose son has just finished, they, they finished school last year. And he was like, like, he did okay. He did okay. But it was a very big school. Uh, it was a state school. And it, it was like just, there was a culture there that it was like, you know, like working hard is not okay. You have your hood up. You listen to you know certain types of music in order to conform to the to the peer to your peers and so on. And for example, this boy was a really gifted pianist, and he was once asked to to perform. You know, uh, parents even he was absolutely mortified by it. It was like I really don't want to do that because this is not something that other kids do, and I don't want to don't want to stand out. And this is really really massive and I, th- I imagine that lots of people listening would recognize this might be the case in their school or in schools that they've worked in i can certainly recognize it from schools that i've worked in that is massive isn't it like that, the scale of the problem there is huge i don't know if there's an easy answer to this but like so so like lots of the examples that you give in the in the book are sort of like things at the level of the classroom and the things that the language that we can use and so on but when you've got like a whole school culture which is like it is not cool to learn how can you start to sort of to break that down what what would be your point of entry so i think one of the sort of sets of arguments that i found really influ- influential or valuable in this was an argument around sticky norms and it's these sticky norms are norms which are just as you've described they've become socially accepted and the paper gave gave an example the contrast between smoking and drinking alcohol in the usa and they talk about how when the so so Lots of people drinking, and so the U.S. passed, I think it's the 18th Amendment, which bans the sale and consumption of alcohol. And lo and behold, I mean, if you've ever seen Bugsy Malone or heard of Al Capone, like everyone goes wild. And loads of people who, you know, wouldn't for a moment have thought of stealing a wallet or, you know, breaking into someone's house are very happy to break the law because the change in the law is seen as illegitimate. And the contrast which the, the author makes is between that and smoking, where Smoking has been, both in America and in Britain, increasingly curtailed one step at a time. So, you know, uh, cigarette advertising, smoking in workplaces, smoking in bars and pubs. And each step sort of feels fairly innocuous. If, if you know, I, I don't smoke myself, but I, I imagine most smokers are uh, like 
aware of the health consequences of smoking. And so it's quite hard to turn around and say, well, actually, I should be allowed to like smoke in someone's workplace in their in their face or whatever. And so by changing, it's like the, the, the frog that gets boiled alive as you gradually turn up the heat, right? You can make quite a big change by small steps. So if I were sitting in a head teacher's chair in a school where I felt there was this really strong norm, I'd be wanting to keep in mind the long, you know, long term goal. I want everyone to be happy to like perform in front of their peers in assembly or parents evening or whatever it is. But actually, this week's goal is going to be maybe this term's goal. We're going to make absolutely sure that, for example, every student is in their lessons when they're meant to be in their lessons or like every student is arriving on time. And if we can get, because if we're trying to change everything overnight, both parents and perhaps teachers and students might not see it as, as legitimate. They might not be able to make that big shift at once. If we can get everyone in the lesson on time, then we can start saying, well, OK, now we want to have a silent start to a lesson. I mean, silent start to a lesson has got pros and cons, but in this context, I think I'm going to say a silent start to a lesson or like everyone just going and sitting straight away and doing some work rather than having a little chat with their mates and having a wander around, around the classroom and making small changes and taking people with you but as you make the small change you have to ensure that you that it's followed and so yeah it's like it's small steps but making really sure that that everyone comes along with you for every step and as you do that you change the norm because actually if everyone's turning up on time turning up on time like turning up not on time begins to be seen as illegitimate and you can't just say well no one else everyone else is in their lesson why are you picking on me sir and and so on yeah I, I can see that. So it's essentially like start small, like build habits, and like and and part of that is like for the teaching body, I think, to to realize that actually these quick wins can have an effect. And like you know, for example, you know, yeah, when everyone starts, for example, saying if you're even five seconds late to a lesson, then that's a detention. Say like lateness just stops overnight, you know. Um, and so some things can some things can. I mean, that's not really about building a habit as such. Well, I suppose it is. It's less, less using a reward and punishment. But it's about, it's, it's right, it's about building social acceptance of a thing. So the the, the punishment is, isn't valuable in the same sense. What's valuable is everyone knowing that you need to be in the lesson on time. Once everyone knows that, then 95% of people will be there on time. And so like, one of the insights from this part of the book is about, for example, like if everyone's being noisy... And then the teacher says, you're all talking. Everyone needs to stop being noisy. You're sort of making out like you're, you're reflecting the fact that the social norm for that class is that everyone's being noisy and that actually that could be counterproductive. And, I've, you know, I've seen many, many teachers uh, fall down that bear pit. Uh, or, for example, saying only three of you handed in your homework. You know, this isn't good enough. The other ones might be thinking like, well, you know, this is fine. This is normal. And the three might be thinking we're mugs for doing our homework, no one else is doing it, and it might make them stop also. So it's a, it's a very useful thing to bear in mind that, I think, as, as a sort of as a takeaway. And I think that a big part of the sort of thing that you're talking about, just to skip ahead a little bit, in chapter five, I think it is, you're talking about how, we could, how, to help, how can we help them keep going. And here you start talking about like, how to build a sense of belonging. And there's a treasure trove of ideas in this, in this chapter about the importance of building community, of finding similarities. Could you talk to that a little bit about the importance of finding similarities between students? Yeah, this is so interesting. And it's honestly like, it's not a thing that I knew a huge amount about. And I think it's one of these things, I guess one of the, the like underpinning things in the book is lots of these things are things that are happening 
in some classrooms some of the time, but often they're happening as a result of trial and error, like luck almost. You try something you're like, wow, that works, and then you keep doing it. And so what I'm trying to do is pull out, well, okay, what are the principles? What things are likely to work for most teachers? And I think if you look at like school culture or team culture, class culture, sometimes it just gels and sometimes it doesn't gel so much. And so the question is, okay, what what things help to make social groups gel? And definitely similarity is is a really powerful one. And obviously like that that is not a thing that you can on one level conjure. Like if you think of your average class from all over the place, all different interests, all different this, all different that, and you know, we're not, I've visited schools in, in, let's say, much more homogenous societies where you can say, like, we all look pretty similar and we're all brought up in exactly the same place. None of the places that I've taught have really been like that. But what some of the really exciting research does is, is show, well, actually, if you help people to find what they do have in common, that begins to create this kind of fellow feeling. And actually, all are, if you pick any class, you know, your class, if you're listening at home, like any class that you think of, you will be able to find lots of things that everyone does have in common, you know, whether it's TV programs, things they're interested in, things they dislike. And pointing to pointing to and highlighting what we have in common really helps people to start, yeah, finding a sense of fellow feeling and then feeling like they belong. And that works both within groups of students, but also in sort of connections between students and teachers. There's also some interesting stuff around um, so wider community building and particularly two well, two things that that made me sort of think here one is like coordinated activity so if you've ever like sung in a choir been part of like a dance troupe or something like that the moment that you just all like pull off this move at once you're like wow we've like made this we are something here and so I wouldn't necessarily advocate this overnight, but hypothetically, if our head teacher wanted to have like a dance-off competition in which each class had to bring its own coordinated dance, that might be a way of pursuing this. You know, feel free not to do that if you, if you don't think that's <laughs> going to fly. But it's a thing that, you know, this sort of fits with that principle. And then the other one, the other thing that really, really made me think was this idea of, of rituals. And if you think of any team that you've been proud to be part of at any point you probably had little in things little in jokes little stuff you'd all meet at the same time you'd all like toast your drinks in the same way or whatever it is and i don't think you can you know again if you're the head teacher and you say we're all going to go to the pub on fridays and we're all going to do this in this certain way at least half people are going to be like no, i'm not doing that that's ridiculous but anytime you see rituals developing, I think that is a sign that a community is forming. And so I think anytime you can sort of accentuate that, like if you see a really nice thing, say you coach a sports team and you see a really nice thing happen at the end of one game, you might just want to remind the team to do the same thing at the end of the next game, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I like it. And it's interesting because like, like this is like, I love reading research and just sort of finding a rationale for stuff that you've seen before, you know. So, for example, like, you know, there's icebreaker games where it's like, you know, there's like 10 things that you could have done over the summer, say, or at some point in your life, like owns a dog or, you know, like went and lived, stayed in a caravan or whatever it might be. And then it's like, go and find someone else who's got the same things as you. It's often seen as just like a sort of pointless icebreaker game. But there are studies done, haven't there, that like when, when kids, well, when adults even, are asked to, to note their similarities with others, that it helps them to gel together and to overlook their differences. And this has been similar studies have been done of like helping Israeli and Palestinian teenagers, for example, 
identify what it is that they that they share in common and it changes their perspectives and it gives them a more positive view of of other people absolutely i agree that, that you know the, yeah, the idea of the ritual that's the other thing where you often see these teachers with these very elaborate like handshaking sort of greeting rituals at the door that often do the rounds and they really divide opinion on twitter some people are like wow what a lovely inclusive you know community and other people are like this is just showboating for social media like they should be in lessons learning what a waste of time sort of thing but you can see that's an example of a ritual building, right? And it's community, it's something that's special, it's something that we're doing together. I love, there's a few, a few sort of takeaways from this chapter. One of them, like, if there's a kid who's absent, sending them a little postcard saying, we missed you today. You know, people have said that that really meant a lot to them to receive that little note, because they often think, oh, like, nobody's going to miss me. But when they actually think, oh, people are thinking about, about me. Um, asking kids to write about their values. That was interesting. Do you want to to speak to that a little bit? I don't know if you can recall it offhand. So, yeah, this is a really interesting set of studies. And, you know, the the elephant in the room here is is the pressure that psychology has been under of the replication crisis of, you know, loads of really shiny stuff looked great it's like wow who knew that holding a hot cup and then shaking hands with someone would mean that you felt more warm towards them which sadly like turns out not to be true but this is something that sort of sounds implausible and yet has managed to replicate in different countries different like with different experimenters different places and the idea is getting students who are new into a school uh, or it's also been done in university to write about some things that matter to you, some values, community, family, friends. And if you go back and you follow up, in some cases up to two, three years later, you find that these students are like whatever outcomes that you care about in terms of retention, academic results, and so on. Those outcomes seem to be better. And the idea is that you're doing a, a couple of things. You are you, you're catching them at a transition, right? So if I turn up in year seven or whatever, or first year in university, I, particularly for, for students who are in a minority, whether it's first and families go to university or ethnicity or whatever it is, there's a voice inside saying, you don't really belong, or do you really belong? And so it's very easy then, you know, if you, if you find evidence in favour of that voice to enter a bit of a vicious circle. So you have like your first test results aren't very good, or like teacher snaps at you or whatever. And so you get into a like, okay, I don't belong here and, you know, I'd rather not conform or leave or whatever it is. By getting people to write about their values really early on, you are helping them to feel like this is a place in which their values fit and which they belong. And by catching them at the transition, you start a virtuous cycle where then instead of looking for evidence that you don't belong, you're looking for evidence that you do belong. So you teach us something supportive to you, you get a good test mark and you're like, oh, this is going to work, I can do more of it, and it, it works for me. So yeah, that, that doesn't mean that like every year seven class needs to get students to write down their values, although, you know, give it a go. I think it says something to us about transitions and about belonging and about finding ways to show students that they're included early on. And then the power of, of starting sort of positive virtuous cycles as opposed to, to vicious cycles. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a great bit of the book that I really like it. And there's much more that we could say about it, but I, I really want to sort of to, to get into some other areas. Just lastly, there's a, there's a section at the, towards the back of the book about teachers and how we can encourage teachers to change and how, you know, the examples of habits that teachers probably often develop quite early on in their teaching career about how they settle the students at the start of a lesson, how they address, you know, if there's a disruption to, to whatever somebody's speaking out of turn. 
how to start a lesson, how to wrap up the lesson, how they mark the books and when to do so, how and when they plan lessons. You can almost see like the vast majority of a teacher's time is essentially sort of quite habitual, automated behavior. And then there's something that's really interesting here, which is about like the, the, there's a sort of there's a tension between the need for autonomy and the need for teachers to be sort of consistent across the piece, you know. Like teachers really welcome autonomy and not just teachers, like, like general studies of people in workplaces, they value autonomy almost like more than they value whether, how much they get paid. You know, like people just want to have a little bit of a say over what they do. But there's a phrase in here where you sort of say that teachers welcome autonomy, but they also need to remain faithful to, you know, strategy X, which is sort of like a whole school thing. And so it's almost like we want them to autonomously choose to implement, you know, the strategy that's already been chosen, which is obviously, you know, not really autonomy, but it's a really interesting area. Like, I mean, what, what would be your sort of your, your, your key takeaway from, from this idea about changing, about changing teachers' habits and how to sort of, like, again, because we were talking earlier about how it's a bit sort of, some people are, feel a bit awkward about changing the habits of, of children because they sort of think that maybe this is beyond the remit of teachers. When we're talking about changing the habits of our colleagues, it sort of feels like, you know, like it's a bit manipulative in some way that people don't want to feel like they're like they're having their behavior changed by you using some particular piece of clever language in a staff briefing, say. Like, it, there's something that's a little bit sort of icky about it. Do you know what I mean? So I'd be interested to hear about your, your sense of that tension and also like, what do you think are the takeaways for, for teachers' habit change? Yeah, let's, let's talk about the, the – there's, there's loads in that. There's about three different questions in there. Let's talk about the tension first. And I guess I think two key points. Like, as a teacher or as a leader, part of your job is to change things in some way so as a teacher like there's no point in you being a teacher unless your students are going to be come out of the year or the day better off than they would have been in your absence and so inevitably that requires some degree of behavior change and we talked about those those habits potential bad habits earlier and so yeah and i guess conversely if you think about like what are the things that a make teaching a difficult profession and b potentially drive some teachers out is the absence of desirable behavior more than anything else so it's you know students calling out giving up not trying arguing not listening to their peers and so my really incredibly strongly held belief is is like teachers are trying to change or influence behavior every single day because if they're not trying to influence behavior if they're not trying to nudge students to do more than they would have done otherwise to be nicer to like you know try harder whatever it is they're probably not teaching if we're happy with that if we're happy with teachers as i would put it teaching then i think teachers should like deserve the best toolkit with which to achieve that and that is what this book is offering i'd say i every time i do like a sort of long session professional development session about this i throw in a like how comfortable are you with this influencing and i'm invariably the person who's most uncomfortable in the room because actually you say to teachers like oh are you comfortable like trying to get your students to work hard or do their homework and they're like yeah like you know wake up and that doesn't mean there are ethical issues with it but I, I think we can over worry about it because actually we're doing it all the time and what we should be doing is sharing best practice best ways of achieving this with our teachers and i think if we avoid that we just say you know okay i'm not going to influence your behavior just do what you were going to do anyway we're giving up on an awful lot of students who for whatever, whatever reason aren't arriving at school with the habits that are going to help them most let's pull that back to teachers i mean i i have a heuristic which i find really helpful which i've 
tried to articulate a few times, which is teacher learning is the same as student learning because teachers like students are human beings and they respond to the same influences, emotions, everything else. Now, clearly some things like the desire for peer approval is a lot higher in your average 15 year old than it is in your average 50 year old. So it's, it's not like it doesn't map perfectly. But if when I'm designing teacher learning, I design it in the same way that I design student learning. So I try and make sure I've got a clear goal. If I want people to do a thing, I'm going to model it and so on and so on. So it, most things I think in the book work if your job and then to extend this analogy in the same way that the teacher is um, responsible for helping students to work hard and whatever else head teacher, head of teaching and learning, head of department, is responsible for helping, encouraging, supporting and pushing teachers to teach maths as well as as possible or whatever it is. So in that sense, I am totally fine with senior leaders using this because if your job is to try and help teachers teach more effectively, and that involves behaviour change, which it almost certainly does, you should be using the most effective strategies available. I do, do, you know, the autonomy point is really interesting. I think my own view is that we fetishize it slightly more than it deserves, not because it's not a good thing, but I think we like, we are, oh, we want so much autonomy and we sometimes do that to, the, to, to a point that's unhelpful. We give people autonomy before they necessarily know how to use it. So for example, I think if you're a first year teacher, actually, in most cases, quite a lot of quite uh, clear guidance is going to be really helpful. If you're a 10 year teacher, teacher who's been around for a decade, much more autonomy is both necessary and desirable because you you like you've built up a repertoire of skills habits everything else and you can use it much more effectively and i think what you know we can these things are always can always be offered as as a blend right so you can you can say well okay we are prioritizing groups of teachers ensuring that we know exactly what students have understood at the end of the lesson here are the like the key points of the strategy the principles like we need to know what everyone thinks it needs to be their own answers it needs to be like focused around the lesson goal you have complete autonomy to do that any way you like, as long as it meets those goals. And that's where like saying you have complete autonomy to a first year teacher is unhelpful. And you have complete autonomy to a 10 year teacher is probably quite helpful and will probably do you a favor. The final caveat is that I do, you know, having I say this right at the end of that chapter, like fundamentally teachers usually know best about what's going to be good for them, what they can do, and what their classes are able to do. All the stuff about let's try and help teachers to change is sort of needs to be held with that in mind. Like if teachers say this is too difficult, it's not going to work, believe them. But equally knowing that behavior change is really hard for everyone. If you've ever tried to run more often, eat differently or whatever, you, you know what that is. And teachers are included because they're tired, they're busy, uh, there's a million other things going on. And so again, if your job is to help teachers to change, support teachers to change, you need to be thinking about the strategies in the book about like make it easy, uh, help people form desirable habits and so on. That's quite a long answer, but you did ask about three different questions. So you, you sort of, you, you got what you wanted, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> I got what I asked for. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that point about autonomy and how, you know, it definitely isn't necessarily useful to, to release people's sense of sense of free spirit too early on in the process and I've, I've done a little bit of work on lesson study and in japan like lessons you, you don't get to do lesson study until you've been teaching for like seven years or something like that and there's like they've got a number of different stages that they recognize very clearly and like for the first sort of two or three years it's like follow the textbook and just try not to cry basically just like just like hold it together and then we'll sort of introduce a little bit more complexity and we'll get you thinking critically about your practice much later on but it's you know it's a much more sort of 
regimented way of thinking about professional development, which is fascinating. And so, so just like, because you were talking about ethics here, there's a bit on ethics at the back of the book, and it's sort of it's it's fascinating. It it was it had been on my mind a bit throughout the book. And you identify five situations in which behavioral scientists have said that behavioral science is ethical when goals are shared with people. So it's not like we're doing something that's sort of nefarious and behind the, behind the scenes. When the change is limited to something that's, you know, like clearly agreed upon. When it's hard to choose well, when you can't remain neutral and when you're being transparent about the process. And that just made me think, like... When isn't it ethical? <laughs> like clearly, in order for this to be the case, like there are ethical concerns with behavioural science, but you don't outline what they are. And you were just saying that generally in your work with teachers, you're the most ethically concerned person in the room. But like, are there ethical concerns here that are sort of lurking in the back of your mind, or do you not really see them uh, as applying to education? I do see the, the the ideas in the book as a toolkit. And, you know, think of your hammer. You could use it to put up a hook for, for a beautiful picture or you could use it to break into a car. And in the same way, you know, like if you think about social norms, social social pressure, that could be used. I could, you know, social pressure could encourage me to like go running with my friends when I would otherwise stay home and eat junk food or, or whatever. But it could also be used and, and, you know, it was used throughout the 20th century and still is in some regimes today to force people to do absolutely hideous things. So what I, you know, what I'm trying to describe is is like a bit more about how how humans function, and it really is down to the purpose. And I think a, a point that's worth hanging on to here is the people who would learn absolutely nothing from Atomic Habits, this book, whatever else, are people like advertisers because they have spent decades honing their craft to be able to get you to spend like as long long as possible on social media, click on this, that and the other, eat more junk food, do this, do that. There are lots of influences out there that are not working to the best interests of the population, I think. And there are lots of influences within and beyond school that are not working to the best interests of our students. But they're using the same tool, these same tools. The, the issue is the purpose. And so if you have a purpose that you can live with, and that the parents, your community can live with, you're probably going to use these things in an appropriate way. And actually, with 99% of students, if you sit down with them, and you say, you know, do you want to study harder? Do you want to keep getting into tension? They're going to say to you, yes, you know, I, I want to be here. I want to do well. The, the toolkit can then help them to do it a bit better, which is a long way of saying these things can be used unethically, but it's all about the purpose. It's not about like using social pressure is a great thing to do if that's going to help people to surpass their, themselves and do better than they would otherwise have done. And a hideous thing to do if you're, you know, getting them to do something against their best interests. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that this is going to be something that's going to get, you know, more attention in the years to come. Because, you know, like, for example, just to give an example of the stuff that's happening at the moment, like attendance is a really big problem, right? Like, like kids have not gone back to school at the same level of attendance that they were attending before the pandemic, especially at secondary. And that difference is not accounted for by, by COVID. Like, like kids are voting with their feet. And Nadim Zahawi has just come in and said, like, I want to get I want to get to the bottom of this attendance thing and, and sort it out. Um, but lots of the people that I've been speaking to recently, people who like, like clinical psychologists and like parents of kids, for example, who have had severe sort of mental health problems. And we know that there's, you know, a mental health being described as a mental health tsunami among young people. The, 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 the statistics are 
alarming and increasing the numbers of people, young people who are clearly not well. And a large part of a young person's mental health problems often is what happens in school, either among their peers or among you know, what's the way that the school is run, for example. And so, you know, using behavioural science to increase attendance, for example, it might look like a good thing because you just immediately think, well, it's, a, it's better for kids to be in school than to not be in school. And if you don't really know any different, lots of people think that. But for lots of people, like using, using this toolkit to increase attendance when the attendance is actually, you know, a cause of concern or potentially, you know, something, you know, more harmful than just being just concerned... There's, there's ethical questions around a whole range of, of areas, you know, and about compliance, you know, like, is compliance a good thing always, you know, um, lots of people have got quite strong opinions on either side of that question. There's a lot going on there, isn't there? So one thing that I talk a little bit about in chapter one, and a little bit about in chapter six about teachers is trying to get to the root of the issue. So yeah, like if, if you're putting all your energy into forcing kids to sit still and then their time is being wasted because they're doing like busy work that doesn't help them to learn. I don't think that's particularly ethical or valuable. And so, yeah, you know, like if, if a student doesn't want to come to school because there's some huge thing going on in their life, just trying to get them into school isn't going to solve the underlying problem. So, yeah, I agree that you're not doing them any favours. Equally, you know, it, again, I th it's, it's fascinating when you go and visit other countries. So I've spent a lot of time in schools in Sweden who've really taken some of the, the sort of the the ideas that, that you're articulating several steps further. And I've also spent time in schools in places like Singapore, where discipline and structure is, is substantially stronger than where we're at in Britain. Just to come back, just to pick up on that, what is it that, that, that's happened in Sweden that's taken which ideas further? If I tell you that there's essentially no behaviour management system or support, so year after year, work with these teachers and they'd say, well, OK, what if a student doesn't want to do X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, you know, positive reminder, sort of, and and then you'd be, you know, I'd be at the point where you know, like, if the child continues to like swear and throw things around, then I'd send them to the head teacher, or whatever. And they were like, well, you know, we're not allowed to do that. The head teacher wouldn't do anything. We like we have to deal with with parents ourselves. And tied to that, there's very much sort of line one of the I can't remember this is of the school curriculum is like everything should be done sort of in consultation with the student. Like consensual consensual education, right? Like not coercive, consent, content-based. Yeah. And I mean, I wrote a series of blog posts about this several years ago now. The result, bluntly, is, is anarchy. Uh, incredibly low levels of learning, incredibly low levels of attendance. And you can, so I think you can take this kind of, the, the, the argument, you know, like, well, you know, school system isn't that great in many ways. On, some, on a lot of levels, I agree. There's loads of things I might want to wave a magic wand over. But equally, a kind of like, oh, you know, well, students, we're happy for students. We want students to push back. Well, yes, I want students to push back and be critical and smart about things. But I also, if I'm sending my son to a classroom, I want them to be able to, like, learn things and not spend the entire time in a kind of tug of war over, like, is the teacher allowed any authority over me? You know, he's a child. The teacher's a teacher. The teacher's had some training. As a society, that is kind of how our schools are expected to work. And I am concerned if we try and push towards a kind of, you know, well, pure, pure, pure democracy can work in places, but often it, it's, you know, these, this can be a little bit disastrous.
so this leads into this section. So I, I know that I sort of forewarned you. <laughs> I want to sort of stress test some of these ideas a bit because there's a lot of there's a lot of new thinking in this area, and you know it's not it's not always straightforward. It's sort of like it depends on your value. Like always in education, it's like it's not straightforward, is it? Depends on your values and what you think education is for and what it is to live a good life even. So let's just pick up on a few sort of questions that occurred to me as I was reading this book. One of them is, uh, so, so to pick up on the point that you were just making and to refer back to the thing, you remember we said earlier about how, you know, people watch films that, you know, are desirable and they defer films that are, that are more challenging and so on. And you equated this with, like, with learning. You're saying people prefer immediate benefits and deferred costs. Learning offers immediate costs for deferred benefits. And this this sort of paints education as though we're faced with a fundamental problem in that we're sort of we're working against the grain of human nature, as it were. But if you leave kids to their own devices, like and so, so and I know that schools don't, right? And that maybe that's point like problem one. So I, I worked for a while in the self-managed learning college in Brighton, where the kids literally self-manage. They can do what they want, when they want, for how long they can choose not to do stuff. And often when they're going through the period of de-schooling, they often don't do very much because they're sort of just deprogramming their minds, if you like. But also, I mean, the homeschooling community, there are other self-directed learning communities. Kids always busy themselves with stuff. They always learn stuff. And I think that it's more the case that human nature is to take an interest in the world around you and to pursue certain hobbies uh, to the point of it becoming like deep learning, you know, the things that interest you the most. And so isn't the problem more that we're like, that schools are force feeding kids a diet of learning that adults have decided is a good thing and that we're just going to do to you whether you want to or not because we, we know what's best sort of thing that they don't have any control over and that therefore we need all these tools as, you, as you're describing to sort of to get the kids to adapt to this to this system that is fundamentally sort of going against their nature. I mean, yeah, I, I think it is in our nature to want these immediate benefits and the deferred rewards. But I think also we it is in the structure of our society that we want to encourage people to go beyond the kind of, you know, the immediate, the junk food and so on. And the, the problem with that is that sometimes academic and personal success asks you to do things to, to work hard in the moment when you don't really want to or to form new habits that are different from the ones that you have. So, you know, like it's the, the immediate reward for me reading a history book is really high because I love reading history books. And so I'm very happy to do it. Whereas the immediate reward for re me reading another paper towards my PhD that, you know, is like dense and complicated. And sometimes, you know, you've got to read a thing that you're like, you don't believe is true, but you sort of have to talk about it, even though it's been subsequently debunked or whatever. The immediate reward is incredibly low. And I'm, you know, like I wish I wasn't doing it. And yet, if I don't pursue it, if I don't put that effort in when I don't feel like it, I won't progress. And, you know, you, you can apply that again to, to any field that you want to do well in. So I think, yeah, you know, some important things aren't immediately or intrinsically motivating. One response is to say, we should leave it up to people what they want to do. I think there's a case for that. And I think there's a time to do that. But I don't think it's until teenagehood. And, you know, if you look at classic books like Paul Willis's Learning to Labour, there's very much a case that some students in a sort of an act of, act of teenage rebellion are kind of self-sabotaging and in the process locking themselves out of ch chance, uh, choices later on. So, so yeah, what I'm trying to say is there's a line, there comes a line at which I think it is right for others to encourage, exert some authority over children's direction. There's a 
that's clearly something you constantly want to be handing over more autonomy to students. And it's also clearly something that must come to an end because at some age, students become, you know, become legal adults and can do whatever they want. But I think if we pursue that too early or too liberally, we risk, again, like, you know, some kids, I would probably have got you know, the A-levels, GCSEs that I got, even if no one had put loads of pressure on me, because by that stage, I was kind of, I liked learning. I was pretty good at it. I was enjoying it. There's some kids who probably don't like learning, but can probably still do all right and will have better life chances and choices as a result. And I just get really nervous when we we say, you know, we need to pull back. I, I just don't want to do that too early and rob kids of chances they would otherwise have had. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's a really massive question, this, and it comes up again and again in this podcast. And, you know, I mean, it's like, if you, if it's like, I mean, I could introduce you to some kids who've never been to school who will blow your mind with what they can do when they're not told what to do, when, they, when they, there isn't that adult authority or a curriculum to learn. Like, they, they can do all kinds of amazing stuff and they're confident and funny and, you know, adventurous and lots of things that, that schooled kids tend not to be at that age, you know, like. But this is a much bigger question, you know, we're talking about the whole, the whole you know, premise of schooling as an idea. And, I, and sometimes I even wonder, the question that I've been wondering recently, which I realise is, you know, not really, like, in vogue, is, like, is teaching even a good idea? You know, like, like maybe, the, maybe the very act of teaching makes learning into something that is done to you. Because, you, you, I mean, you, I don't think you would necessarily disagree with this, because you're saying that we should increase autonomy as kids get older. That isn't something that happens, really, in the school system. They get to choose their options at year eight, and increasingly those options are very, very limited. So there are lots of people, for example, in this country, like many, many adults who never read ever. You know, they don't read a newspaper, they don't read a book. They never, like millions of them, like five million or something. And they were all taught stuff for ages at school. And it sort of, it, it turned them off learning. It turned off the inquisitive, curious sort of part of their minds. And they just like, and, and maybe made them feel bad about themselves as learners even. And that brings me to my next sort of thing in, in this in this um, stress testing section, which is about top-down habit change. Like, like the book is very much about top-down stuff. Like the, the language that you use is like, um, for example, it says at one point, to get students learning, we must firstly specify what we want them to do. And the we being, you know, the adults, the teachers, or elsewhere, it says uh, there may be many things that we would like students to do differently. Trying to change them all at once would be exhausting. We must prioritize. So again, it's like, you know, the, the, the adults are in, are in control of that process. But is it the role of teachers to explicitly mold students' behaviors in this way? And also, I think more interestingly, like, like if until I came across your book, I've been thinking about doing something about habit change in the education space, but I would start at the student end. I would be like, what evidence is there that students, adults can be built or, or bad habits halted by teachers? Like, surely habits have to be built from within or else it's like conditioning, isn't it? It's like top-down change is sort of like, is it like just a, like some other, it's like a more elaborate form of behaviorism in some sense that you're sort of, you're pulling levers and eliciting changes in the kids, but like, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily the healthiest way or maybe even the most effective way to build long lasting habits. It seems to me that it's like, there's two ends of the telescope here. And I'm not saying that it, that it's wrong to, to look at it from the adult's perspective, but I'm just opening the question. Like, what do you think about that? So, I mean, again, there's there's like loads of different points and angles that you could take that in. Let's start by talking about behaviorism as opposed to behavioral science. And obviously, behaviorism is a, a label that can be attached to a load of different 
different things. But if you just see it in you know, simplest term in terms of punishment and reward until people do whatever it is or rats do whatever it is you want them to do, that is not what I'm suggesting. And where I think behavioural science difference differs from, but well, a few few ways that behavioural science differs from behaviourism. One is behavioural science is trying to, to like understand why people act as they do, and that's why there's a bit in the book about sanctions and rewards, and there's also a bit in the book about emotion and society, um, you know, social groups and social norms and so on. And all of these things are influences on on humans. And so the book, you know, if the book's trying to do one thing, it's trying to help teachers understand what's going on in the classroom or in a student, an individual student's head better. And, you know, I don't, I don't think you can, can be against that, even though that includes some things that were used by sort of more classical behaviourists, the, sort of the skinners of this world. Tied to that, behavioural scientists are quite adamant that, and I do say this a few times in the book, it's like, actually, these are things that these are methods and approaches that we can teach to students as well as using with students. And so if I as a teacher understand habit change and I help my students to form desirable habits, I can also talk to them about like the reason why I'm asking you to make a detailed plan for when you're going to do your homework or whatever it is, is because if you make a detailed plan, you're more likely to do it. This is also a strategy that you can use, whatever else you're trying to do in your life. So you're actually helping people to become more autonomous, more providing them with greater agency because they can achieve the kind of changes that you're hoping to to achieve. But you said, you know, don't have it. Habits have to be built from within. I mean, sure, like is the person who has the habit, but external influences make a huge difference to whether or not we form those habits. We know that things like committing to other people, knowing what other people are doing, seeing role models are all things that, that help people to form habits. Again, you know, we can idealise the 5 to 10% of the population, whether adult or child, who build really amazing productive habits without any external input. But I think for the rest of us, you know, we, we need this kind of help. And I'm very comfortable saying that teachers should be helping students to form those habits. Again, with as much autonomy as you can offer. And that might include, you know, with a five-year-old, what matters to you this most this this term? When is you pick the best time for you to do this? You pick what reward you're after and increasingly handing it over so that a five-year-old by the time they're 15 can say to themselves, okay, I want to be able to do this thing. I know I need to plan when I'm going to do it. I'm going to organise a reward. Like when I finish my homework, I'm going to go and like watch something I want to watch or play something I want to play or whatever. But I, you know, I think if we if we shrink back from that and saying, well, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it, again, we just, you know, we're saying well, we're not going to take control over our own actions and we're not going to help our students to take control over their actions. And I, I, I just, I just don't think that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So again, it's coming back to the to the the, the fact that this is a toolkit, isn't it, and that it can be used for nefarious ends and also for helpful ends. And the way that you're describing it is that if you're being transparent, if you're meeting those ethical criteria we mentioned earlier, that you're saying to the kids, look, like I'm helping you to build healthy habits and you can apply these elsewhere in your life. I'm absolutely down with that. I just think that like, if it is a much more of sort of an us and them thing, and it's like, how can we get these pesky kids to hand in their homework more or to attend school more or whatever it might be, that we're going to use this as another tool. It's like, it just seems like there's already an awful lot of top-down pressure being placed on kids. And I think that that is a profound concern. And I think that it's a large contributory factor to, to this huge uh, problem with young people's mental health that we're seeing in this country. And I'm just, I'm, it concerns me a little bit that if these tools are going to be used in a non-transparent way, you know, in a way that isn't sort of open and, and like, hey, hey, kids, here's what we're doing. It's just like we're sort of teach, training the teachers 
how to manipulate the children's behavior so as to so as to you know improve make the school look better on paper or whatever it might be i think that that would be a concern and i think that you would probably share that absolutely you know yeah like you know in the same way that i'd be concerned if if the you know kids being off rolled on the day well whenever and if when Ofsted are turning up like that the, like there are loads of things to not like about how schools are running but that doesn't doesn't mean we can't give people good tools to try and and you know we've 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 got to both trust and support teachers to you know be trying to do the best thing for their students um and not to do nefarious or you know things that things that we don't want them to do yeah yeah okay and just on a similar note to this and this <laughs> i realized that some of my questions are like paragraphs with six questions in them this one is quite a succinct one and it's and it goes to the heart of this really so you see you write an introduction that that habits help students focus their efforts without creating automata and yet in the paragraph above that it says you, what we talked about earlier a habit is an automatic an automatic response to a situation and so isn't the book squarely about creating automatons if you like because you're trying to to develop these habits which are automatic in the kids how do you square that so this is a really interesting question i was I'm really glad to see that you wanted to ask something about this because it's something that habit theorists have been working really hard on in recent years and uh, particularly influenced by ben gardner at king's and as i understand it the state of the art in habit science is to say that everything is habitual and automatic at some level. So let's say you're going to work tomorrow. It could be that your route is habitual, like, you know, you leave the house, you go the same way to, to school or wherever you're going. Or it could be that you've got a route choice. You're going to check, you know, maybe I'll take this road, maybe I'll take that road, depends on the traffic. But definitely many of your actions of driving are habitual, you know, like mirror signal maneuver, whatever. Or it could be, probably not in, in your case at your advanced age, James, but, you know, it could be you just got your license and so you're still you're sort of automating the like pedal and uh, the sort of clutch accelerator transition, but you're having to think incredibly hard about like I'm at the junction, he's coming this way, da 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 da. And so I give that example to to illustrate that there's there's a constant interplay between habit and choice, but at some level every action is habitual. So as I speak to you now, I'm thinking about what to say next, but at some points I might be like I have like a pat way of explaining some aspect of the book that I've given you like given 50 times before so at that point I'm like autopilot for this sentence and then something for the next sentence I'm definitely not thinking about how to speak even though as I say the word the there's an automated I want to say the and the comes out and I'm definitely not thinking about that so what does that mean in terms of students well I think like what when when you help people form a habit you're creating little building blocks the more um, someone, uh, I can't remember who, but but like there's there's this really nice line from about 1900. Anyway, I can't remember. Who, around like human civilization advances based on what we are able to automate, right? So the more I have to think about the details, the harder it is for me to think at a higher level. So if I'm having to think about the pedals, I can't like drive in a smooth way. If I'm having to think about how to form the next letter, I can't write a sentence because I'm thinking about the letter, not the sentence. And so where we help students build up habits, we're providing them with more building blocks that allows them to A, perform specific behaviours in like a practised, fluent way, and B, allows the freeze up working memory to do other more complicated things. And when something is habitual, if it's something we want to do, it has a lot of advantages. Like 
it's kind of impervious to things like our worries about confidence or emotional concerns. Like if I always drive the same way to work and I'm really upset today, I'll probably still make it to work intact. In so we can create increased automata automaticity for specific actions. And actually by doing that, we give students greater choice rather than less. So if they automatically always make a plan when they're about to write an answer, they can be thinking about well, which bit of the plan should go where, rather than what on earth am I meant to do as I start answering this question. If they automatically are in the habit of listening to their peers, they can think about the content rather than, oh, I can't wait to butt in and, you know, have my say. So that is how I would square that circle or circle that square. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a really impressive answer, man. Like, I really enjoyed that. And I think I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again to just sort of let it properly sink in because there's a lot in there. But yeah, I can I can see it that, that this is happening at multiple levels, and I think it's sort of it partly there's something that people just don't like about the idea of manipulation. Do they? Like, everyone always says adverts don't work on me, don't they? Like you know, and obviously that wouldn't be that people wouldn't spend millions on advertising if it didn't work. And so there's there's something about it that the, I saw it, there was a quote in uh, in Daniel Willingham's his upgrade update of his of his book Why Don't Students Like School and he's talking about like the, the emotions are really powerful in learning but that inducing certain emotions in order to help students learn better feels manipulative and somehow wrong and there's just something about it that I think that people are going to struggle a little bit as they start to get their heads around this that. But actually, you can think your way through this as the people that you're just describing have done. And it's actually, it's okay. Like you say, if we're, if we're teaching kids to be able to do certain things automatically, like, for example, you know, using full stops and capital letters so that they can think more creatively about, about metaphor, say, like, that's no bad thing, right? Like, so maybe we can make friends with, with automaticity and not be too, too squirmish about it. So the, there's a brilliant article that came out last year by an american academic called logan fiorella oh yeah i saw that yeah so it, it's like it's like we should be thinking more about habit and one of the things that he does kind of in the early part of the article is he goes back through the, the abstracts and titles of sort of I don't know, 30 years of education psychology journals and he's like there's like only one other thing about habit and ironically it that's around how like people who are really successful have really good habits so you're like your charles darwin's of this world would go on their three walks a day and like you know great writers will always write between someone's like you know i'm right when i'm inspired and i make it my business to be inspired between 8 a.m and midday every day or that, like this kind of stuff and you know he he touches he doesn't say a huge amount about it because it's kind of not germane to the article but he touches on like you know there is a residual discomfort with this i've talked to um american school leaders who say it's a european thing it's like a legacy of 20th century history like we just this this idea of molding behavior is a thing that we're we're not happy about but i think that article is really strong on like look if you want an explanation for why people are doing things as they are it's probably habit and and you know that if you think of every time you've like had a conversation with a student where you want them to like stop doing a thing that's really self-sabotaging and they're like yeah, yeah, yeah i want to change and then they do it again and so often it's like they don't need another conversation about wanting to do it. They need you to help them with like, what are the prompts? What are the things that are triggering this behavior in you? So I'd really recommend any listeners who are interested in habit generally and in this debate, have a look because I think Logan makes a really strong case for why we need to think about this a little bit more and also tackles a bit of the bit of the discomfort side as well. Yeah, thank you. Is that the paper that you, you wrote a, a Twitter thread where you sort of pulled out lots of the key parts? Is that that one? Probably. I've written the odd Twitter thread uh, in, the, in the past, uh, but that is definitely a paper when I saw it, I was like, wow, this is like uh, 
really powerful. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I'll see if I can find a link for you. I yeah. thought it was great. I Thank you. I, I've got access to it. And I'll also share the Twitter thread because you did a really good job of pulling out the key things and saying why it is that you think this paper is so brilliant. Right. Thank you. Well, that that, that uh, brings us to the end of, of the light grilling of, of some of the ideas in these in this book. It is such a fascinating area. Um, and as I say, I think you've done a great job. I really wish that I was in the classroom still because uh, lots of these ideas that are in the book, I was like, oh, man, that would have made my life easier, you know, 10 years ago. So brilliant. Okay, so we've got a little bit of time left, and I'm going to do the rest of the stuff as sort of not quite a quick fire round, but, you know, like a bit more pacey. So firstly, in this podcast, I always really like to get to know the person and to get to know, like, just out of interest, like, what was your own experience of education? And I'm also interested in this idea of significant learning, which Carl Rogers firstly wrote about, this idea of, like, the moments in life that really shape you as a person and that have shaped your thinking or the course of your life maybe so um, could you just sort of chart us through uh, through that like your own childhood your own experience of education how you found it um, and any moments of significant learning along the way so I think the, the moment that springs to mind in particular when 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 I sort of thought about this question so I went to like quite a high performing school like most of the people around me were doing well were expected to get like multiple high grade GCSEs and A levels and at the same time, well, through, like through my teenage years, I spent a lot of time in the uh, as an army cadet, as part of the army cadet force. And it's safe to say that uh, most of my fellow cadets were not going to schools remotely. I mean, this is like what nineties were going to schools that were really struggling. So, like my sort of best friend in that group left school with a one C grade pass in PE and just didn't go to most of his exams. And he wasn't like, he was a smart guy. He wasn't like exceptionally naughty or anything, but it was just like, he was going to a school, I think that at that time was hitting about 12% A to C GCSEs. And anyway, as an army cadet, you like progress up and it doesn't take very long before you're in charge of training newer cadets. And I remember in particular working with, uh, one of the things to train people in is mat reading, because that's quite useful if you're like pretending to be in the army, like being able to get to A to B in, in the right order. And working with a cadet who was 13 or 14, whatever he was, and like couldn't, like was essentially enumerate. So you're looking at it on a map, you're looking at grid references, you're trying to find like grid reference 607251. And he'd like, he'd see a six and he'd be like, well, it's there. And the whole thing was sort of, was alien to him. And, and I just remember finding that both astonishing and also quite motivating that like the, working with him I could see a huge need. I mean, like that was that was a single session. I didn't teach him maths or anything in that session, but that was was both quite eye opening to me and something that I was like, this is a thing that is worth doing something about. Yeah. Okay. So that was the the first sort of inkling that you might want to become a teacher. I think so. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember any. any early, I mean, you know, I, I enjoyed working with kids. You know, I did various bits of volunteering at the university that, that were sort of working with kids. And the first thing I did when I left, I didn't know that I wanted to be a teacher when I graduated i knew that i wanted to go traveling but the only way that would like fund that would make that possible would be to find someone who was going to pay me rather than uh, paying for it myself so the first thing i did after uni was was go to japan through a scheme to get people to be language teaching assistants and that was the thing that sort of really i was like great i enjoy teaching but i'd also just really want to like go and live in japan and learn japanese and so on and so on enjoyed living in japan but was like wow teaching is the thing that i really want to do and actually I want to teach, teach and not sort of teaching assist bouncing around between different classrooms and not always able to influence kind of the course of where things are going. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating that that example with the cadet, because it's something that often because like teachers are graduates, right? 
and they, by by definition they are you know in the top like fifty percent or for whatever the percentage is thirty percent of of people academically achieving and often they were you know did well at school and often they were sort of in the top sets say and didn't get to see what happens in bottom sets and sometimes when that happens I remember with a, there was a, a, a top set student that I was once teaching and she came in and she was in year 11 I think and she came in and was she for some reason I think the kids had gone on a trip and she hadn't gone so she was like basically a, a, a loose end and I asked her to come in and sort of to help me with this class I was teaching a bottom set year nine and we were doing electricity and it was a really basic lesson it was like this is how a switch works right and it's like here's the here's the circuit diagram and if the, if it's not joined up then the electricity can't flow and then the bulb goes out and the kids were really struggling to understand this and she was i can remember the picture on her face now like she was like a jaw on the floor she was like i don't understand why they can't understand this like it seems so simple and I think that sometimes teachers like, go through their whole life not really realising that. And then when they become teachers and they start to teach kids who really struggle with stuff, like you say, who really struggle with literacy and numeracy or whatever, it's like a, quite shocking often because it's like, wow, I don't, I don't really know even where to begin with this problem because, you know, it's not, it's not been my life experience to this point. Yeah, definitely. I had a, an amazing year 12 student who knew she wanted to be a history teacher and she came and TA'd for me and I do remember you know we'd sort of try and like you know train her train her a bit to like learn learn stuff from it and I just remember her sort of being like as you know stuff like I don't understand why they don't get it sir and I'm like yeah this is this you know like it's been fine for you and you've done really well and this is what like you know a lot of the rest of the world is is like and and you know this is there's pressures that and you know particularly if she was going to go on and be a teacher that you're gonna have to think think quite hard about Mm, yeah yeah so so are there any are there any more moments of significant learning that maybe you had on your travels or since you returned uh back to the uk that they're really sort of thought that was actually a really pivotal it could be a conversation that you had somebody that you met a particular book or paper that you read um i mean i i guess almost everything that i think about education i've changed my mind about at least once and and sometimes more than that and so in that sense there's there's loads i mean i you know i remember going to um the first couple of academies that i went to you know like politically i was i felt dead set against academies and academization and everything else and i went to one and just got like a tour round by a student and i remember her saying like you know something like we're just ordinary kids, sir. Like, you know, we don't, we're nothing special. And, and, and yeah, it was clear that she was like, she was working quite hard. And I was like, I feel like the equivalent students, the equivalent students in terms of sort of motivation and whatever else in my school are not achieving what you're achieving. And then going to, I went to another uh, academy and they did, it was the first time I'd ever seen a do now task. And so like the kids came in and they started working straight away. And I remember coming back to my school, it was like, june july even i think so everyone's knackered no one's doing anything you know too too uh too challenging and just being it just hadn't occurred to me that like actually learning could start minute one rather than minute five and just being like right from now on we're going to do do now and everyone's going to sort of get started as soon as they come in not kind of more gradually so those those are both quite big big changes yeah change you know to completely changed my mind about knowledge and skills was adamant that everything was about skills and knowledge wasn't that useful and you know uh, read and learned and got challenged by some really smart people and, and sort of changed my mind about that yeah so you know go backwards and forwards and so do you do you feel like you made the transition from being like what year did you qualify to teach in i qualified in so sort of two years abroad and my first year teaching in england was 2008 
Okay, so do you, do you identify as somebody who was previously quite progressive, skills based, and now you would consider yourself to be quite traditionalist and knowledge based? Is that a fair a fair summation? I mean, labels are unhelpful, but if you have to give things labels, then yeah, I definitely I'm definitely much less progressive than than I was. And likewise, you know, when I first went to Sweden, I was like, wow, it's just beautiful and then the more i went there and the more i learned and talked to people who were really into the system and looked at the teachers i trained and their progression i was like this is more complicated than i than i thought it would be and you know you go i mean if i think about professional development first of all i thought professional development should and just in terms of subject specificity i thought you know to, should kind of be generic and then i thought it should be subject specific because there was sort of that was in the the, the various cpd reviews that were sort of 2015s ish and then i read a load more cpd papers and i was like well actually this doesn't and, and you know i think that's just goes on and on like you, you you dig deeper and you keep changing your mind and it was in, i was talking to some people who i'd considered to be quite on if we have a progressive and traditionalist uh, sphere on the trad side, talking to them about where they send their kids, primary school. And they're very much like, you know, one of them was like, well, I just send them to the closest place because I just want uh, one of them to have local friends because that's the main thing they're going to get out of it. And I'm like, but, you know, you think like knowledge and cultural capital and this, that and the other is like, well, you, you, so, you know, you, that's what life's all about, isn't it? Just like keep learning and trying to get a little bit nearer the truth and try and not screw up too many things for other people while you're on that journey. Yeah. They want traditionalism for other people's kids. That's what they want. That's the spirit. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I get what you mean about the labels, and it's uh, they are often unhelpful, but also they are often instructive. You know, I, what fascinates me about the trad prog divide is that it cuts across different things. It cuts across behaviour. You know what prog like the archetypal progressive attitude to behavior is, for example, restorative practice, something that's more permissive, non-coercive, for example, and the trad end, you know, and likewise in the curriculum, you've got a student-centered, you know, interest versus like the canon and knowledge-rich and also across pedagogy. So like, you can't say they don't exist. Like, like they're very, very clearly defined sets of ideas that, that for some reason sort of seem to come in a bundle it's like if you're a traditionalist it sort of like comes with the behavior pedagogy curriculum assessment <laughs> the package you know like there are people who pick and choose but also there are many who don't so i t- tell you why I'd, i'm uncomfortable placing myself on that well various reasons but so like nasim taleb has a, a really important incredibly important point about what he calls issue clustering so like if there's someone who you agree with about like brexit and masks wearing and vaccination and uh i don't know like house building and this and that you've got a problem because you are not thinking hard about the issues you're following along with with groups and likewise i think if if you say like i always align to a trad side on behavior and the curriculum and school structures and this and that and we do you know we do see that like you know one side of the debate if you think that um students should learn the you know the greatest that have been thought of said you also think that well, academies should be autonomous i mean that's nonsense isn't it and yet often we see a clustering of like those two those are two completely different questions around what students should learn and how best to help them learn it and so if you see a clustering like you've got an issue and you're not getting towards helpful answers to, to like the best possible answers is part of my issue on it the other issue is i think like as soon as you say i'm this i'm that you are you are get, getting yourself into that bashing of heads game of like well you know you're a trad so you obviously agree with so and so and you obviously think that you're a prog and blah, 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 blah. and actually 
if you sit down, if you sit down and talk about labels, then you disagree with people on the other side, whatever the other side is. If you sit down and talk about, okay, a student comes in and they're really upset, what do you do? A student comes in and they hit another child, what do you do? I think you're going to find the Venn diagram overlaps at like 80%. And if we go back to the, the, we were talking earlier about the like, you know, how thinking about how much people have in common. If we sit and point to our differences, we end up with a culture in which we, you know, in which there's a lot of clashes, not all of which are necessary or productive. If we sit, start with where we are, where we where we are in common, we are more likely to be able to work together and, and learn from each other and achieve something by it. And so I very intentionally, if I'm going to go to, let's say, random, I've got a perfect national sample of 100 teachers, and let's say I wanted to go and say, let's make the curriculum more challenging. I'm going to start, I'm damn sure I'm going to start by taking in like so all the reasons why you might not, not want to do that. I'm going to make sure that I understand what they're thinking and the counter arguments and so on, because unless and until I do that, we're going to run straight into a like, well, I disagree with this. And also, I'm really angry about the last election or Brexit or vaccines or, you know, whatever else. Yeah, I just think it's essential if, if we're going to make any form of process progress as a society. I agree. And if we're, if we're going to get out of this horrendous uh, little cul-de-sac of the culture wars that we seem to have backed ourselves into recently, like so many of the people that you see, the most vociferous people arguing on whatever side of the debate they consider themselves to be on, they all believe like in the principles of freedom and equality. They all pe- believe people should be nice to one another and that people shouldn't be you know, discriminated against. By and large, most people agree on that stuff. And it's just like it's the caricature that they, sort of, that they seem to be arguing against. And it is spectacularly unhelpful. And just as just as a minor point, just to go back to the academies thing, I think that it is interesting to note that there's been lots of innovation and things that were happening, things that happened in academies, and especially in free schools, which is basically an academy that didn't exist before, because they often built up from the get go, and they were able to recruit the whole staff body behind a particular vision for how a school could be. I think it's a lot harder to transform a, an academy with an existing staff body. But it is interesting to note that even though, you know, there was lots of innovative thing, things happening in academies, innovative at least being different to what happened before, overall the evidence is not, is not in favour of academies, right? Academies don't perform any better than non-academy or free schools uh, on average. So there's a, I think it's just important to make that note because I wouldn't want people to think that we think that academies are like, you know, the best that there is because that's not what the research suggests. Anyway, um, let's just come back to these final three questions. And I know that we're, we're very short on time now. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you one, one each in each of these three categories. One positive thing that you think is brilliant that you've seen out in the world, it could be to do with habit change. It could be to do with something completely different that you think is great and that you would like to see more of. One challenge, the, the big challenge that you think, oh, I really think that we need to address X within education and then a solution to that challenge, if you will. Uh, as I mentioned a couple of times, I've done various bits and pieces of work with other countries. I do think in England we are thinking harder about the curriculum and the learning process than the average, let's say, um, the, the, like the quality of debate and thinking and all the stuff that's associated that, like the teacher blogs, teacher books, like there's just so much really hard thinking about what should we be doing and why. Um, and although that leads to passionate Twitter battles and everything else, I think it does. Yeah, it just means we're thinking harder. And I'm, I am optimistic that that will have positive long run effects in terms of just like having people who are smarter whether they're getting into school leadership into government 
into whatever they choose to get into so that that is is good yeah i agree that's a great one thank you it's true good yeah cool um challenge this is broad i've thought a lot about institutions in the last year and a half two years primarily because i mean just had the report the other day maybe it was today but i think it was blindingly obvious before then pretty much every institution that was meant to do anything positive for people in britain uh, over the last year uh, in particularly in health failed completely at some stage and whether that's in terms of you know something i was personally very passionate about was like understanding how the disease is spread the importance of mask wearing whether that was in terms of the sort of interventions how well the internet whether it was travel lists whether it was this whether it was that ppa provision like everything broke and that is extremely disturbing and i say that as someone again if we look at this thing of like changes i say that as someone who who definitely used to be a sort of big government statist person like you know government probably knows best universal provision this that and the other but at the point when big government is killing you it becomes slightly harder to have confidence in that i don't know what the solution is but i think i've been really interested in I don't know i'm really interested i'm trying to find out more about how the vaccines task force works it's like the one bright spot there i'm really interested in taiwan both in terms of their conduct of most of the pandemic and also like they've got a platform that helps you to that helps people it's like consultations but helps to build consensus around positive options rather than just turning into a slanging match there are solutions out there i do not know whether our government and our you know whoever whoever's in charge is able to take them up but i guess like david runciman's got this argument that like democracies are rubbish at preparing for crises but they're the only government form that is then adaptive enough to work their way out of them so i guess you know maybe it'll all be all right in the end so it's a bit of a a down note to end on but that that bothers me and that's sort of driving some of my thinking at the minute yeah 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 thank you no it's it's, i think it's a good note to end on because it's you're right like things have clearly gone incredibly wrong um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of it's obviously a wider issue than than education. Something that I've been really interested in recently is this emerging field of implementation science. I don't know if you've come across this much, um, but I think that it holds. I, I've, my, my, I've been immersed in this for about the last three years, and I've spent pretty much the whole of this year making an online course in an attempt to scale up these these ideas um, more widely. And I think that it holds huge potential for helping schools to implement stuff better as well as other organizations this stuff is the implementation science sort of originated in healthcare but healthcare is also an area that really still needs it business as well but it's widely sort of acknowledged that something around like 70 or 80 percent of, of change initiatives in businesses fail to achieve their stated goals and also as an approach to to running government uh, it seems like there's there's huge uh, implications. Maybe we should have a whole other conversation about this because I think that it is is the only is the only sort of set of tools that I've come across and principles that that can start to pick through that that process. You know, and it's like about intelligence. So, for example, that people often say, for example, oh well, such and such works in Taiwan, but they're very different people, and it's a different economy, and they've got a different mentality, and you, we can't we can't import stuff. And you hear that often, don't you, in education? They're like, oh, Finland's Finland. We can't import that here. And it's true to say that you can't just cut and paste policies and expect them to work. But implementation science gives you a framework for like how to actually go through that process. It's not just like, we can't do it. It's like, here's how to, here's how to continually work our way towards the least bad variation that's possible, you know? 
and for that reason, like it all can't go wrong in theory, at least because like that's what it does. You're always orienting towards the least bad way of doing things um, and adapting as you go. So that, that's anyway a, a note to a note to to part company on um i know you need to head off and, and get your boy but i i'd just like to thank you massively for taking the time to speak with me congratulations on the book i think it's brilliant and I, as i say I, I really think it's going to be the first of many on this topic you've hit a rich seam i think and it, I, I imagine that this is going to run and run i've really enjoyed this it's been really good to, to play around with some of the issues and and take a critical perspective and uh have a constructive what is it what they're called constructive collaborators you know so anyway that it's been great so thanks very much james it's been a pleasure Time is a measure of change.